That music tells us one thing. It's time for WISA Weekend, WISA's weekly radio magazine. I'm Jerry Kenny. Another Sunday and another half hour of great WISA programming coming your way. We'll share some news headlines from the past week, and we've got stories coming from the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WISO, including the best of Dayton Youth Radio and Veterans Voices. And later in the program, Bill Felker shines a little sunlight on the January winter weather with Poor Will's Almanac. Up first... Officials have now opened several investigations into the death of 10-year-old Dakota Collins. One of the three people arrested in the case was the boy's father, Al McLean, on charges of child abuse, endangerment, torture, and the rape of a person under 13 years old. Two women were also charged. Josh Schweiger, investigative reporter at the Dayton Daily News, has been following this case as it's been unfolding, and he joins us to talk a little bit more about what he's learned and how the investigations could play out. Josh, I understand that there is a history going back several years to this case. Can you explain to us a little bit about the background on this story? What we have heard and what the records we've seen have shown is that there was a history of contact between Children's Services caseworkers and Dayton police and this household of this family. Dayton Public Schools employees tell us that Dakota Collins, while he was a student at Horseman Elementary, where he was apparently from kindergarten through most of fourth grade, Teachers say that there were multiple complaints made to Children's Services. The superintendent of schools, Elizabeth Lolly, tells us there were 15 complaints, is what her employees have told her. Teachers have said that they complained every year. He started school there in 2014. And then in 2018, he was withdrawn from school by his father. The um, teachers we spoke to said that some of them even believed that the father took him out of school because there were so many abuse complaints. And teachers said that there were issues that they're trained to see, such as evidence of bruising, evidence of neglect, such as hygiene issues. So those are the indications that they were looking at that caused them to call Children's Services. At the same time, records show that there have been at least three contacts with Dayton police in that household since the beginning of 2018. In May 2018, around the same time that Dakota was taken out of school, uh, a Dayton police officer was dispatched to the residence because he received a call from a Dayton public school teacher, just like they'd said, and from a children's services caseworker saying, hey, we have concerns of abuse. Can you check on this household? The officer showed up, knocked on the door, nobody answered. And uh, that was the end of that interaction with Dayton police. It's unclear what, what Children's Services did with that information when they found out that nobody appeared to be home, according to police. As you mentioned, he was pulled from school to be homeschooled. Is there any indication that that even took place? And what else do we know about his time after he was removed from Horace Mann? So, yeah, he's removed shortly before the end of the school year in 2018, according to school officials. And he is enrolled, uh, becomes a homeschool student. The school officials have said that it appears that he followed the, pro- the father followed the proper procedures to uh, enroll him in homeschooling. There's only a few steps that are required. You have to file some paperwork. At no point in the homeschooling implementation process do school officials or anybody, for that matter, see and interact with the child. It's all done through the mail. So at that point, it was the last interaction that school officials saw. After that, there were two more police interactions uh, at the home, at least two more. One in November 2018, when the father called, uh, it was the father that called, saying that Dakota was being unruly. Uh, Dakota was briefly in the backseat of a police cruiser, according to the reports, and then the father came out and said, no, actually, um, I'm going to take him to Kettering Behavioral Health. 
Then in May 2019, uh, the mother of the child, Dakota Collins' mother, reportedly starts calling or has been calling saying that she's concerned about abuse. And again, Dayton police go out to the house. And according to the police records, they say that Dakota looks fine and they're told that he's being taken care of. Let's talk about the investigations that have opened up as a result of Dakota's death. You've got Dayton police investigating the abuse and neglect crimes, Montgomery County Children's Services doing their own investigation, and now Montgomery County is investigating Children's Services' handling of the case. Investigations can take a lot of time. What comes next? Like you said, so the most pressing is the criminal investigations. No one has been charged in Dakota's death. The charges have to do with uh, endangering children, neglect, and there's a rape charge on there as well against the father. The two women in the house are charged with endangering charges and that sort of thing. So there's still an open criminal investigation to determine the circumstances more specifically and whether any other charges need to be filed. Reviewing how things were handled might even take a backseat to that criminal investigation. They might step back and say, let's let that finish first. Uh, And then what some have said is that actually somebody else outside of all of those agencies needs to step in, review all their actions, and see from a global perspective whether things should be reviewed. And so some state lawmakers have told us there needs to be an independent outside review, maybe by the sheriff's office or by the attorney general's office, into how all these agencies handled this thing. How is the community reacting to this case? People are deeply disturbed. We get phone calls and emails and letters. It is objectively heartbreaking. Um, this little 10-year-old boy, the circumstances that are described in these court documents are horrific. Um, The allegations are are terrible, and uh, I think everyone sees that. Everyone's heart goes out to this kid. And if there were indications that there could have been anything done to step in and stop this and save this little boy, then I think everyone wants to review that and see what can be done to prevent something this tragic from happening again. Josh Weigert, investigative reporter with the Dayton Daily News. Thanks for the update on all of this. Thanks, Jerry, and always a pleasure talking to you. The Federal Communications Commission has granted the Dayton Daily News owner more time to find a new buyer. The extension could keep the newspaper operating seven days a week. The future of the paper has been in question since last year when a private equity firm bought Cox Media Group's Ohio newspaper, radio, and TV stations. For WISO News, Community Voices producer Jason Reynolds reports the paper's fate was at the top of the agenda at last week's city commission meeting. Soon after the Cox Media Group purchase, Apollo Global Management said it would cut the Dayton Daily News to three days a week. The announcement sparked an immediate outcry from many Daytonians. Shelley Hull spoke at a city commission meeting Wednesday night. She says she's afraid people will lose their primary news source. It's just a news desert, another news desert that's popped up, which is pretty common right now. Folks are just not going to know what's happening in their own backyard. It's really scary. At the meeting, commissioners passed an informal resolution calling on Apollo and Cox to find a way to keep the Dayton Daily News daily. Mayor Nan Whaley says she wants Apollo to be transparent about its plans. Because quite frankly, they've been pretty quiet about what their actions are. And I think in addition to this resolution, that's what this body is demanding. For now, the future of the Dayton Daily News remains uncertain. Apollo reports seeing interest from a handful of potential buyers, but the company only has until mid-March to sell the paper. For WYSO News, I'm Jason Reynolds. Montgomery County unveiled its strategic priorities for the next five years. Key among them is a plan to make the county's infrastructure more sustainable. County Commissioner Judy Dodge says even before last year's water main break and days-long water outage, the county struggled to maintain its infrastructure. Dodge says its critical county residents are able to depend on utilities such as drinking water all year long.
When they go to work every day, when they flush the toilet, when they drink their water, everything is safe. So we have put an effort into making sure that our infrastructure moving forward into the 20s is repaired and fixed and make sure all of our community here is safe. Dodge says events like the Memorial Day tornadoes highlighted the county's infrastructure needs. You can see more on their strategic five-year plan at WISO.org. In other local news, Major General William Cooley, commander of the Air Force Research Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, was removed from his position on Wednesday because of alleged misconduct. WISO's Lila Goldstein filed this report. The two-star general was removed from his role running the Dayton-based scientific research branch. The Air Force cited a loss of confidence in Cooley's ability to lead. Officials didn't reveal the specific reason why Cooley was removed. Air Force spokesperson Derek Kaufman told WYSO that the Air Force Office of Special Investigations will conduct the inquiry into the alleged misconduct. Cooley took over as commander of the Air Force Research Lab in May 2017. He was responsible for managing a workforce of 6,000 employees, running research programs with budgets totaling close to $5 billion. Now he's been reassigned. Brigadier General Evan Dertine will replace him as the unit's commander. For WISO News, I'm Lila Goldstein. And in the weeks ahead, Lila will take over as WISO's new Morning Edition host, and we are very pleased to have her on the staff here at WISO. Sticking with military matters, World War II was the most widespread war in history with more than 100 million men and women serving in military units. This week on Veterans Voices, Navy veteran Richard Meyer of Dayton talked to his stepdaughter, Colleen Murphy, about some of his memories while serving at sea during that time. So since you came into our lives when you married my mom, we've been hearing all the wonderful stories you have. It'd be nice to capture all of these stories for the kids that aren't here yet. Oh, yeah. I thought maybe <laughs> you could tell us about uh, when you decided to enlist. Okay. I wanted to enlist from the start of the war, which started in 1941, Second World War. So on my sixth, sixth, 17th birthday, I went right down and enlisted in the Navy, and I was assigned to the USS Shelby, which is an APA-105. We, we had a bunch of uh, battle station orders. You know, the captain come on and say, battle station, battle stations, this is a drill. Man your battle stations. This time the guy said, man your battle stations, a man overboard. This is not a drill. We all ran up to the fantail of the ship and watched this guy out there swimming around. And we're going forward, and he's going backwards. Oh, no. And all of a sudden, well, I, I saw his arm up, and then all of a sudden it disappeared. So we think a shark got him. Wow. That was That's a terrible thing to see. Yeah, it was awful. So anyhow, we went on, and um, we're out maybe a week or two, and we hit a typhoon. It was really rough and scary. After the typhoon, right at the end of it, we had a party in the chow hall. Well, the guy was playing the piano, and the couple guys were singing. But the ship rolled to the right, and the piano player slid from one side of the ship to the other and banged up against the wall, splintered the piano. Oh, my. It didn't hurt him, but it was funny. <laughs> um, 
So after that, you were on those ships for a few years? Two years, probably. Okay. And then they shipped me to uh, Panama, and I, I got on a submarine tender, which is a submarine repair ship. Hmm. We had everything on that ship. You could imagine machine shop, woodworking shop, everything. I bet you like that. It was nice. It had ice cream parlor. <laughs> really? Yeah. And it was nice and big. I'm remembering um, another story that you told about when uh, sailors go over the equator for the first time. Oh. There's some kind of initiation yeah. or something. Um, when you cross the equator, if you haven't been there before, you're called a polywog. They have some kind of ceremony. that they <laughs> it's, it's like hazing. Oh, they make you crawl. Either. I remember in our ship, you had to crawl through a barrel, a long barrel tied together. It was full of spaghetti. <laughs> and they told us it was full of worms. Oh. And you had to crawl through it. <laughs> then you get on the other side, they spake you with the other bare hands, just giving you slaps on the back and uh-huh. on the butt. Everything. If you had to do it again, would you join the Navy? No. Would you join another service? No. Interesting. No, I didn't. Um, I didn't care for it. it. It was okay during the war and right after the war because there wasn't very many regulations. But after that, it got real strict. Mm. I didn't like that. But then being away from home all four years is not fun either. That was Navy veteran Richard Meyer and his stepdaughter, Colleen Murphy. This conversation took place at WISO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WISO is presented by Right Path Credit Union, and additional support comes from TerraSource. The story was edited by Tony Holloway and Will Davis. We've got more WISO Weekend on the way. Stay with us. Dakota here asking, how well do you know your WISO DJs? I'm Dante Bedingfield. 3J the DJ. I'm Juliet Frumholt. I'm Todd Widener. This is Rev Cool. Radio Basin. This is Devin. You'll hear all your bluegrass favorites. I'm Jennifer Berman. This is Cindy Funk. I'm Eric Henry. I'm Evan Miller, inviting you to the outside. Dive in to WISO's wide world of music. Find these local hosts and their hand-picked playlists at WISO.org. For the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Weekend, we'll hear jazz, old and new, as liberation music, the power of soul, protest songs, and sacred music search for both standing firm and peace in the valley. Also, New Orleans percussionist Cyril Neville speaks of social justice. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Saturday night at 10 and Sunday evening at 6 on 91.3 WYSO. Hi, I'm Tom Hanks, an occasional fill-in host for Peter What's-His-Name on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Honestly, I only took that gig because I didn't want my public radio membership to lapse, and it was either that or fork over 50 bucks, and I'm not giving away 50 bucks. 
So if you want to support this station, you have three options. One, fill in for Peter What's-His-Face on Wait, Wait, Who Cares? Two, give him 50 bucks. Or three, donate your old car to this station. I know what I am doing next time. Learn more at WYSO.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is Why So Weekend on WYSO. Welcome back to the program. The latest documentary from Yellow Springs filmmakers Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar has been nominated for an Academy Award. American Factory follows the rebirth and transformation of the former General Motors assembly plant in Moraine into Chinese-owned Fuyao Glass America. American Factory made its debut on streaming giant Netflix last August. Buzz surrounding the film as a potential Oscar contender came early. The film is the first to be picked up by former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama's Higher Ground Productions. American Factory's nomination for Best Documentary Feature was announced early Monday. The Oscar nod follows Reichert's and Bognar's Best Directing Award win at the Sundance Film Festival last year. The new film is a follow-up to Reichert and Bognar's 2009 Oscar-nominated documentary, The Last Truck. That film captured the shuttering of the Moraine GM assembly plant near Dayton, Ohio. The 92nd Academy Awards is set to air February 9th on ABC. And this week we have another story from the Best of Dayton Youth Radio, produced in 2016 at Yellow Springs High School. This one's about family and adoption. My name is Olivia Brintlinger Khan. I am 17 and a junior at Yellow Springs High School. I was adopted from China before my first birthday, and my parents are both Caucasian. I live with my mom, dad, and younger brother, Zach. My story is about adoption because... I don't understand why some people hide the fact that their child is adopted, or why they think it makes a family any less real. I asked people from my school, what do you think defines a family? Golden Bittner, I'm 14, and I think being able to express your feelings to your family members is really important in family. My name's Callie Smith, I'm 17. I think a family is a community of people who love and support each other. Amon, age 18 spending a lot of time together and enjoying each other. I also want to see how other people whose lives are affected by adoption feel. You and I have always been very close, and honestly, I think we've been a lot closer than a lot of other siblings we know. I spoke with my brother, Zach Brintlinger-Khan. Zach and I shared a room until I was in sixth grade. What do you think about adoption? It brought me my sister, who's pretty great most of the time. I didn't even really think about the fact that you were adopted until maybe... I was, I was maybe 10 or 11. My first memories, you're always there telling me what to do and trying and failing to bail me out of trouble. We've always been close. It's just how it is. Do you think being biologically related to someone matters in families? No, 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 no. I don't think that at all. I mean, our family has a history of adoption. We've got a Korean aunt. We've got you. My bond with my aunt or with you is any stronger or weaker because you're not directly related to me. I love you guys, I mean, unconditionally. I never really got into any fights, but I used to used to shove the other kids on the playground when they would say things like, I mean, but she's not your real sister and all that jazz. I mean, I couldn't stand it. I was, I was very upset about that. Why'd that make you upset? Because it's them devaluing the relationship that I have with my sister, which is strong. And honestly, it was stronger than their relationship with their siblings. I got along better. I still get along better, we're closer. I know a couple of kids who said that whose relationships with their sister, I mean, they might not have said a word to them in the past two weeks. 
I'm technically related if you go back to the Neanderthals and stuff. That was a really stupid, stupid note. Except I'm, I'm more related to Genghis Khan than you are, so beat that. Okay, thanks, Zach. Love you. Love you too, Liv. I sometimes forget I'm not white. I was one of two visibly not-white persons at my grandmother's memorial service. I think about how it might have been hard for my grandma, who came from a German immigrant family in Illinois, to have an adopted granddaughter. But I never felt anything but love. Now I'm interviewing my parents, Angela Brintlinger and Stephen Kahn. Hi, I'm Angela. And I'm Steve. My first question is, do you feel like we are a real, normal family? Of course I feel like we're a real normal family. I'm not exactly sure what normal means. I also don't really know what normal means, but this is the only kind of family we've ever had. What do you think defines a family? Family is the place where when nobody else is going to take you, you can come home to. Our family is the people that we think about first thing when we wake up in the morning and the last thing before we go to bed. It's the people I want to be with and that I worry about and that I cheer for. Do you think the family would be different if I was a biological child? Uh, a couple of years ago, we had the chance to go to China together, uh, you and me and your brother Zach. And we went to the art museum in Shanghai, which was really quite wonderful. But outside the art museum, you and Zach started to really horse around. And at one point, you jumped on his back so that he would carry you down the sidewalk. And let me assure you that at that moment, you did not look Chinese you looked American because no Chinese kids were doing that on the street and they were all staring at the two of you because you were doing stuff that Chinese kids don't do in public, uh, not, at, not at the art museum. I think we kind of look and act alike. I mean, there are things that you do that are very much like things that I do. You've, I raised you. You're, you're a lot like me in, in bad ways and in good ways. Um, and so you are who you are, but I think also you are who you are because of us. And we are the kind of parents we are, in part because of you. Sometimes I wonder if my life would be completely different if my parents were of a different race or the same race as me. I feel very lucky that I have the family that I have and that we are so close. We love each other very much. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but sometimes you can't help but wonder. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Olivia Brintlinger-Khan at Yellow Springs High School. That was a story entitled, It Is Just Family, written and produced by Olivia Brittlinger Khan. To hear more stories from Dayton Youth Radio, visit WYSO.org. Special thanks to Eli Hurwitz at Yellow Springs High School. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Project Coordinator Basine Blunt. This story originally aired in 2016. You can find more of our Dayton Youth Radio stories at WYSO.org.
This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac for the third week of deep winter, the fourth week of the pussy willow cracking moon, and the fourth week of the sun in winter's Capricorn. The year seems to slow down and pause now, frozen in the middle of deep winter. But natural history and our own hope for spring continue to be the sum of our observations. Since there is no real limit to what a person might watch and record, an endless winter is only in the eye of the beholder. Like every other season, winter accumulates. It's the product of the sensation that we allow it to give us. It's only what we see it to be, and it's all that we see it to be. Even now, the landscape is part spring, part late fall, and the grass is greening in sheltered corners. The fallen leaves are darkening in decay underneath the snow. Osage fruits are becoming speckled with age. Autumn berries, which measure the advance of the year in color and substance, are thinning out. Coral berries are becoming paler. Almost all the bittersweet hulls have fallen. Red winter berries lie scattered about the ground. Honeysuckle berries are completely gone. Early spring weeds like purple dead nettle and hemlock have expanded into mounds. Pussy willows have cracked a little, and multiflora rosebuds are flushed and look ready to open. Crocus and snowdrops are starting to push up through the mulch. Overwintering robins gather in flocks. Crows that spent the winter in the south return to join their year-round counterparts. Starlings come more frequently to feed in town, and sparrows have begun to mate. This is Bill Felker with Poor Will's Almanac. I'll be back again next week with notes for the transition time to late winter. In the meantime, watch for cracks in the landscape, letting in the light of spring. Bill Felker contributes to newspapers nationwide, including the Yellow Springs News. Bill resides in Yellow Springs. Poor Will's Almanac is also available as a podcast at WYSO.org. Well, that's it for this week's edition of WISO Weekend on 91.3 WYSO, your home for independent news and hand-picked music. Coming up, we've got the book nook with Vic McCunis. We'll be back next Sunday at 10. Thanks for joining us.
I'm Eric Henry, local musician, blues fan, and host of the newest program here on WYSO, The Blues Revival. Meet me Sunday afternoons for a journey through time, blues time. Like the old cats say, if you don't dig the blues, you gotta have a hole in your soul. Nobody wants that. Now I know that your love is real. For many Americans, McDonald's is a place to get a cheap, fast meal, but for black Americans, it's been much more. McDonald's provides us a prism for wondering why does a McDonald's have to have such an important role in certain communities, and in others it can just be a place to eat. A new book on how the fast food franchise has claimed an outsized place in black communities on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon at 5 on 91.3 WISO.